Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. I have a very special two-part episode for you all, starting this time, where I interview Tim O'Neill. Tim is an atheist blogger who specializes in reviews of books on ancient and medieval history, as well as atheism and historiography. He holds a Master in Arts in Medieval Literature from the University of Tasmania and is a subscribing member of the Australian Atheist Foundation and the Australian Skeptics. He is also the author of the History vs. the Da Vinci Code website and the History for Atheists blog. He finds the fact that he irritates many theists and atheists in equal measure a sign that he's probably doing something good, and I couldn't agree more as you'll hear as we go throughout the show. For those of you who enjoyed this episode and would like more like it, please consider becoming a sponsor on Patreon or by sponsoring us by following uh, the Become a Sponsor Podbean link in the blog. Also, if you like our show, why not head over to the Christus Victor Network and check out some of the other great podcasts on offer there. With that, let's dive right into this episode where we discuss history for atheists and the rest of us. Enjoy the show. All right, so Tim, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you uh, a bunch for for making the time. No problem, Tyler. Uh, it is uh, a, a day ahead. How's the future down there? Um, yeah, cold and wet in Sydney at the moment. It is winter here, so. Oh, that's right. It is. I uh, I have a a friend who's who's been on the show a couple of times, Nicholas Brzezzi, and I always I always wonder and I ask him about Christmas in Australia. Um, if it's you know, do you, is it. Is it snowing and and everything when you have Christmas? <laughs> no, <laughs> Wait, no, it's but, hot. it is it is hot. But all the but all hot. the do you get all the images of like Christmas snowmen and and everything? Yeah, yeah, it doesn't make any sense it's, at all. A little Discord. Ah, oh, well, yeah. well, you know, that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> um, well, uh, I you know, welcome to the show. For not everyone in the audience um, is going to know who you are um, beyond the, the introduction that I gave. Um, I, I wanted to have you on for some time. Um, I've been a, a big fan of your work for a while now, um, and, and you do a really good job kind of holding holding your own side uh, of the, you'll probably hate this term for it, but your own side of the camp, so to speak. Um, you, you, you do a good job keeping them honest and, and, and uh, kind of holding their, their feet to the fire when they, when they make some pretty serious um, and elementary blunders. Um, but, but all the way back to the beginning, I mean, was, were, were you always, um, kind of, uh, a, a skeptic and unbeliever? Did you ever, you know, dance with God early in life or, I mean, what just, how, how is your, how is your background? All right. Yeah. I was, I was raised in a, in a Christian family, um, and, and was, was pretty happy as, uh, you know, not, not terribly fanatical, but, but certainly a believing Christian until about the age of about 16 or 17. Um, but I've always been, very interested in history, and uh, and at the age of about sixteen, found myself sitting on the sidelines of a, a conversational dash argument um, between a an evangelical Christian and a 
and a, and an atheist, and she kept saying Jesus said this, and he kept saying how do you know, and she kept saying Jesus did that, and he kept saying yeah, but how do you know, and she kept saying but it's in the Bible, and he said yeah, and when was the Bible written? And she didn't really have terribly good answers. Now, he was saying things that I now know are completely wrong, such as, you know, the Gospels were written two or three hundred years after the time of Jesus, which is, of course, garbage. But it made me as a 16-year-old you know, Christian think, do I really know how to... Yeah, I know, that's always a good thing. Do I, would, if I was in her shoes, would I be able to answer any better than she did? Because she, she it was terrible. Right. So it, And I don't like losing arguments, Tyler. <laughs> Uh, and never have, and so I, I thought. Well, if I ever find myself in that particular argument, I want to make sure that that I do. I want. I want to win. So, I went away and started to to read up on the question of how do we know, and and it kind of went from there. I I, I came to obviously came to some conclusions that are very different from yours, and very different from those of your um, your listeners, I imagine. Uh, so I, I don't believe that Jesus was. God, uh, I believe that Jesus was Yeshua ben Yusuf, a, a Jewish apocalyptic preacher, um, and and then went on to university, did philosophy at university, and and uh, looked a lot at at uh, some of the big questions, including the, the the existence of God. Did a whole unit, in fact, at university on the existence of God, and looked at the arguments pro and, and con, and and um, uh, read read a lot of of theology as a result of that. Read uh, quite a bit of Thomas Aquinas and and. Uh, and some of the some of the you know the, the the really old arguments which are still used, and ultimately came to the conclusion that I'm without a belief in any god or gods. So I'm I've, yes, I've always been a, a, a skeptic. My father was a scientist and and was very skeptical about absolutely everything except his faith. Uh, managed to keep that in a kind of a box and keep that to one side and never questioned that. But everything else was was you know ghosts and ESP and magical powers and so on everything else was uh you know he, he would always ask how do we know so i'm 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 keen on that question i'm very keen on that question but i believe if you're going to be a skeptic you should be consistent and so what you need to do is you need to be an equal opportunity skeptic you can't do what my father did and sort of go well i'm going to question everything except this because that's uncomfortable and at a couple of points in that that journey from being a, a christian to to being an atheist i found myself feeling very uncomfortable as you, you know because I, I thought I'm going to have to change everything I think everything I believe it's going to jeopardize my relationship with my family and my friends and so there were a couple of points where I kind of thought well maybe I'll just stop about there because if I keep going I might come to conclusions that I don't like and I thought well no I can't do that if I'm going to be honest I can't do that and and how about I face the the conclusions and and accept that they're provisional I could be wrong I can change my mind I can go back you know it, 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 that's the journey so I'm I'm certainly an equal opportunity skeptic or sometimes call myself an equal opportunity curmudgeon <laughs> um, and so when you you talk about me sort of keeping keeping the atheists the new atheists you know the the, the more sort of vociferous anti Christian anti-theistic atheists, honest on on aspects of history. I do that with everyone. I do that with with Christians as well. I, I regularly find myself in long conversations with evangelical fundamentalist Christians about about you know they're, they're trying to tell me that the the infancy narratives in Matthew and Luke can be reconciled, and they just can't. Um, they, they historically, they, they just can't. They're set ten years apart. One is set in before four BC. That's Matthew. The other is set after 6 AD, and all of the apologetic attempts to try and bring them together just fail. So I'm, I'm uh, equally uh, uh, annoying uh, to those guys <laughs> as I am to people like Richard Carrier and, 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 uh, and, and, and those guys on, the, on, on the, uh, the new atheist side. And it's not just to do with religion. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm hated by, by Holocaust deniers. Uh, I'm despised by Serbian nationalists because I just keep coming across people trying to rewrite history right. because of emotional reasons. This is the common thread, and I know we're going to talk about what new atheism gets wrong about history, but effectively it's because they are emotionally invested in a particular view of history, and so they, they resist, if, if they come across any kind of, of counter to it, they resist it, and, but most of the time they just accept a kind of a, a series of pseudo-historical myths without question. They take them on faith, which is I'm sure you'd agree. Ironic. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. I'll have to have you on the show sometime and um, 
and set you straight on some of those other issues like the the infancy narratives. But that's for another that's for another discussion. No, I good I, luck. I, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, you know, just just hyper quickly my my resolution is that they're just not the same narrative one is infancy one is basically a toddler so um that that's that's that i don't know if that works mate, but anyway <laughs> but it's different um so so um do you ever so one of my questions is you know you're you're one of one of the strange charges that we get because i was i grew up as a as a as a non-believer i grew up in a in a purely secular home i had no religion uh, no religious belief going up i didn't become a believer until i was about 20 Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when I, when I criticize, um, atheism and I, and, and they'll be like, oh, well, you know, you were indoctrinated and I'm like, well, no, I was, you know, never even raised in the church. Uh, <laughs> then they'll say, well, you, you know, you're lying. You weren't really a true atheist, which is just, mm. it's weird. And I, and I wonder, do you ever get the like, well, then you're not a real atheist or you're, you know, you're a closet Christian, like that type yeah, of, that yeah. type of oh, response. Yeah. I, I, I get that all the time. I get, actually, I get it from both sides because when, when I'm, uh, when I'm, I'm uh, talking to fundamentalist Christians about their mangling of history, I'm told, well, you would say that because you're a closed-minded atheist who doesn't know anything about Christianity and you've never never felt the love of the Lord Jesus, to which I say, actually, I have. Um, so I, I, do, I do know where you're coming from. Um, but I, I definitely get the other side uh, where, where people say, well, actually, you're not a real atheist. I've, um, I'm, I'm regularly referred to as, as, a, as a pretend atheist and, and as a Christian apologist, which any of my friends who hear that just think is hilarious. Right. Um, I've also been told that I'm a, I'm a paid uh, apologist for the Vatican. Uh, <laughs> and if that's true, wow. and I don't, know if, I don't know if His Holiness the Pope listens to your podcast, but if he is listening, I've been doing this for many years and you owe me a lot of money, buddy. <laughs> He's he's a big fan. Regular, regular. Is he? Oh, that's right good to hear. Yeah, yeah. 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 Listens every show. Um, what what really got you into these? Um, I mean, because because there's a sense you kind of gave us your background, and and there's a sense where you where you could have where you could have you know studied these and found them interesting, but and kind of you know personally rewarding and 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 good to have personal discussions. What got you into you know towards the end of this, we'll talk about your blogs and all that kind of stuff. What got you into blogging about it? And what got you into kind of you know coming out and and being um, just as vocal about some of these things uh, as um, as the, the the new atheist that you're kind of talking against in some of these cases? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually less vocal than most of them. That's probably because I've got a life and most of them don't. Well, well, um, I mean, we're, I know what you we're mean. all I know less what you vocal mean. than them, but you know, public <laughs> attempt at least. Yeah, true. Uh, okay, I, I suppose a couple of things. First of all, my, my academic background is in, in medieval studies. So I've got a master's degree in medieval literature, but that was kind of an accident. I really, my, my real love is and passion is medieval history um, and, and early medieval history, and then and, and that kind of fades out into, into late Roman history, but ancient history as well. Um, so that, that's, I suppose that's point number one. Uh, because given that a lot of the new atheist pseudo history or sort of the myths that they that they peddle about Christianity, actually a hell of a lot of them focus on those periods. You know, on things they they, they talk about things like uh, Christianity destroying rationality in the ancient world and ushering in the dark ages, and and they talk about uh, the the medieval church teaching that the earth was flat. And they talk about the, the the trouble that Galileo had and how that was all about medieval medieval Christianity being anti-intellectual. When you study the medieval period, you know that pretty much 95.78% of what everyone thinks they know about that period is complete garbage. Um, so as a medievalist, you, you're already constantly trying to disabuse people of myths and so I, a bit long before New Atheism ever even sort of came about and before it even had a, had a name, I was busily explaining to people that the medieval church did not teach that the earth was flat, um, that, that, uh, that most of what they know about the Inquisition never happened, and, and various other bits and pieces. So I've been doing this for a while. It was only when, um, when New Atheism really started to come about and, and we, we're really talking about that, that kind of more recent, since about 2001, 2002, that more recent sort of um, uh, uh, activist anti-theism um, embodied by people like Hitchens and Dawkins and so on, um, that, that I'd, I'd noticed in, in the discussions around the, 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 the new atheist topics, people kept referring to these things. 
and assuming that they were real, assuming that they were true, assuming that there was a, a centuries-long conflict between science and theology, assuming that that uh, that a whole lot of things about early Christianity were true, that Constantine adopted Christianity because as a cynical political move, and that, that he wasn't really a, a Christian at all. You know, Da Vinci Code level of nonsense history, and and I suppose as someone who was an atheist and who was. Uh, and who was participating in some of these discussions, I kept being the guy who kept bumping in and butting in and saying, sorry, that's not true. Sorry, that's also not true, and that's not true, and that's also not true, and no, Pius the Twelfth wasn't actually friends with the Nazis. And and I got this reputation in the on a couple of New Atheist forums, on the old Richard Dawkins forum and a couple of others, as being the guy who kept saying, sorry, that's wrong. Um, which got two reactions. One reaction was people telling me that I was a, a pretend atheist and actually a, you know, a, a, a Christian apologist in disguise, as we just mentioned, um, and, and getting very angry with me. And then the other people who kept saying, you ought to write a book, um, which I might do one day. But because writing a book is complicated and takes a hell of a long time, what I tend to do instead is write blogs and write the occasional long uh, forum post and and uh, and stuff on Quora and a few other things that, are, that people like you have come across. So it, that, that's kind of how I got into it. It was really sort of um, thinking that if you're going to talk about how you're a rationalist, if you're going to talk about saying, you're going to say things like, um, I'm, I, I check my facts, I do my homework, I don't take things on faith, um, I look at things objectively. I don't let emotion get in the way. If you're going to talk about that stuff, you should actually do that. And I find that a hell of a lot of my fellow atheists of the new atheist variety uh, don't. Um, they, they talk about that stuff, but when it, it, it's convenient, they throw all that out the window and they take things on faith. They aren't objective. They're highly emotional and they're completely irrational. Yeah, I've, you know... I've I've never found you know the the criticisms of um, atheism to be religious or whatever all that all that helpful or or accurate, but there is there is one sense when you, when you're dealing specifically with this kind of I don't know cl- cliched you know meme sharing kind of uncritical <laughs> you know what I call the quote unquote skeptics that you know, where where functionally you know. In in one sense, it's not fair to call to call talk, to call Richard Dawkins like a pope or a bishop or something like that because you know it's not venerated, it's not you know whatever. But but functionally, there's almost the sense that like if he says something, then 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 it must be true. Like they just don't need to they don't need to check facts, they don't need to be critical of it. You know, there's 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 almost like this sense where functionally that that is sort of accurate in what in what happens kind of on the on the day to day level. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah, like I think I think that's 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 there's a large degree of, of truth to it. Um, what what um, Stephen Colbert used to refer to as truthiness, uh, it's not actually truth, but it, it kind of feels like truth because I like it. Right. And 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 this is you know I, I once and, and the depths to which it can go is quite astonishing. I once um, kept up a com- I won't call it a conversation an exchange with a guy on on, a, on an atheist forum. Where he kept insisting that the medieval church did teach that the world was flat, and I kept just quoting medieval authors, quoting <laughs> theologians from the Middle Ages, showing him you know the, the, the things like John Sacro Bosco's book, De Sphera Mundi, which means the sphere of the world. That was the main textbook on cosmology in medieval universities for four weeks. Every day, at least three times a day, he would respond, and I'd come back to him with more evidence. And all he'd come back with is, "You're you're wrong, right. you're wrong, you're wrong." They burn people at the stake, and I go, "Yeah, but not for saying that the Earth was round." Yeah, and I, I tried to, I kept it up only to see how long he would keep it up, because I thought surely he'd have to give up eventually, because right. he he just looks like a complete idiot. Um, but he didn't. In the end, I, I just thought, okay, I'm wasting my life. My girlfriend said to me, are, "Are you still arguing with that guy?" And I said, "Yeah." She said, "Just give up. Let's, you know, let him go." And and seriously, four weeks every day, twice a day for four weeks. So so you can't tell me that that emotion isn't part of what's driving these people. I think the, the other thing that, that often is driving uh, some of them, particularly the ones who will argue until they're blue in the face, even though they have zero evidence and you just keep thump like that guy, you just keep thumping them with evidence, um, is they're, they're just they're natural contrarians. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the Jesus myth 
um, people uh, uh, on, the, on the new atheist side of the Jesus myth uh, thesis. Uh, basically, they get a lot of psychological um, pleasure from from everyone telling them that they're wrong, uh, because they it makes them feel as though they know. It's almost like conspiracy theory. It makes them feel as though they're special, and they know something uh, better than everyone else. So they they're almost like the elect. You know, a lot of lot of these fundamentalist cults, we're like, we are the chosen ones and everyone else is wrong. So if everyone else is telling us we're wrong, that just reinforces how special and magical we are. Um, so a lot of cults actually, you know, really thrive on being being persecuted. Um, you could almost say Christianity was like that for quite a while, uh, be- because it made them it, it vindicated their their, yeah. their feeling of being right. Yep. So I think I think that there's those two things. So there's really it, there's really this sort of uh, the, the high high level of emotional um, uh, um, confirmation bias. Um, th- there's that contrarianism. And the other thing is that, that a lot of these guys, when it comes to history, a lot of atheists come from a science background. And so um, they, they often come to atheism through things like uh, um, arguing against creationists. And I find this particularly with American atheists. A lot of American atheists are very, very strong on science and really believe that science is the answer to everything. They, 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 they really believe in scientism. Yep. Unless it's scientific, it doesn't, it's not real. Yeah, um, so they 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 reject philosophy, they reject aesthetics, they reject everything else, everything other than what you can you can you can prove nuts and bolts wise, and even if they're not quite at that extreme, they come from a science background, which means that they haven't actually studied history since about high school, if that. So their their grasp of the of history of the world is is quite cartoonish, and their grasp of how history is studied is even worse. It's non-existent. So this means that arguments that Anyone who's actually studied history would find hilariously bad. They find highly convincing. So you get people who say things like, "Well, Jesus didn't exist because there are no contemporary references to Jesus, and because there are no contemporary references to Jesus, Jesus didn't exist," which is a terrible argument. Um, all, all, all it says is that there are no contemporary references to Jesus, but it's a non sequitur. It doesn't therefore follow that he didn't exist. What we need to do is have a look at, should there be contemporary references to someone like Jesus? Right. And that's, that's, that's what a, a, a historiographical analysis would do. It would say, okay, what's the heuristic here? Should there be historical references to Jesus? Let's look at people like Jesus and see if there were any contemporary references to them. So let's look at people like Athrongas or Theudas or John the Baptist or uh, Anias or Honey the Circle Drawer or Shammai or Hillel or you know any of these other people. There's about there's about a dozen early first century Jewish preachers, prophets, or messianic claimants. So people a bit like Jesus going around preaching and, and they're having a following and so on. Do we have contemporary references to any of them? Guess what the answer to that question is? No, it's no. No. It's no, right. So, so the heuristic, therefore, is no, we shouldn't expect there to be any contemporary references to Jesus because he is in a category of, of the ancient figures that, for whom there would be no contemporary references. So the fact that we don't have any for him tells us absolutely nothing about whether or not he existed. And, and the, the example that I like to use to, to really get across to people exactly how patchy our evidence for anyone in the ancient world is, is that we have no contemporary references for Hannibal. Now, Hannibal almost destroyed the Roman Republic. He was one of the most famous generals in the ancient world. He quite definitely existed. There's no doubt about that. But how many contemporary references do we have to Hannibal? None. So if we've got no contemporary references to someone as important and prominent and significant and famous in the ancient world as Hannibal... What does that tell us about the expectation that we should have contemporary references for Jesus? Right. It tells us that's a, that's a ridiculous expectation. So, so why do they get so tangled up with their history? Because they're not very good at it. Right. Because they've never studied it. Because they're basically focused very much on science. Yeah, you know, one of the, one of the things when I we'll get to Jesus mythicism, you know, later. Um, but one of the things that I that I've noticed is that there's kind of like a, a soft mythicism and a hard mythicism. There's you know the people that are just well, there's no evidence for Jesus, therefore he didn't. And then there's you know the the, the, the really wacko ones that are you know well he's you know Horus reincarnate. Um, oh yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and 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 for for those ones, I you know I've actually gotten to the point where I just don't even argue and I just ask them, all right, that's what you said. Can you can you please quote inside a primary text? Yeah. 
and it's just yeah. it's just crickets. It's nothing. There's there's you know it's just no, no. It's, see. I don't even bother. I don't even bother arguing with the with the the Jesus was Horus guys because they they tend to be New Agers and trying to argue with a New Ager is like trying to nail Jello to a tree. Yeah. Um. It, 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 there's 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 actually no framework of of reason or logic. They just kind of like throw sort of similarities and general correlations and bits and pieces from from 19th century uh, esoteric works and something from a theosophist and something something else and, and they throw it all together and mix it all up and go and therefore Jesus equals Horus and th- you can't even unpick that stuff I, I just ignore those guys at least with um, with with the new atheist style of of, um, of Jesus mythicism they, they they're at least trying to play the game that historians play they just play it really badly yeah well, and there's there's some irony there. So I know you know you've written some blogs um, criticizing uh, Jerry Coyne um, and, and some others, and and I've always just found it so so ironic. And I think you said this in one of your articles is that 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 Coyne would would absolutely lose his mind if yep. if if a non expert if if a historian came into biology. Um, and and started uh, pontificating and making really dogmatic statements and and telling you know people who have multiple degrees and doctorates and been doing this forever you know you're doing this wrong you're all wrong you guys are, <laughs> you guys are idiots like like he would he would lose his mind he would write like 700 blog posts criticizing these people but he feels absolutely free to do it with history yep uh, and I, yeah and and, and it's, at a it's... loss for how that's okay. It's 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 astounding. I mean, basically, once you step outside of your field, you, you're you're effectively you drop back to 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 uh, a lay, idiot layperson straight away. But people like Coin, for example, uh, don't seem to think that. They they seem to think because they've they've got a degree in science and they're they're very they're very profound on science that they immediately uh, are experts on a whole lot of other stuff as well. Um, a, cl- a classic example of that is James Randi. Uh, who was a bit of a hero of mine when I was young. You know, I, I, I used to love the work that he did with uh, exposing skeptics and and debunking faith healers, and and I just thought he was hilarious. I went and saw him uh, perform. He's a great stage magician as well. But uh, I met him, and and I remember at the time it, you, you should never meet your heroes. <laughs> Um, because I met him, and he struck me as one of the most humorless men I've ever met. Um, he said a lot of stuff on stage when he was when he was giving his talk and doing his stage magic that was very funny, but it had a real sort of a bitter edge to it. And it was only when I met him I realised that this is a guy this is a guy without a sense of humour. But he he quite a couple of a couple of years ago decided to champion the idea that Nazareth never existed. And uh, he was championing the, um, the the book by a, a guy called Rene Salm. Have you come across Salm? I haven't. Okay, so th- this is kind of an offshoot of the Jesus never existed thing. This is this is that's that's pseudo history. This is pseudo archaeology, uh, new atheist style. So Rene Salm is of course eminently qualified to to uh, critique the work of all the archaeologists who have excavated in the Nazareth area, uh, because he's a piano teacher from Oregon. Clearly. Uh, yeah, so that he, makes perfect sense. He, he's in tune with the data. He, oh, yes, that he was is. bad. That was bad. Yeah, um, <laughs> he, he. I'll ignore that. So he, <laughs> um, he, he went to Nazareth once as a tourist, as far as I can make out. But what he's done is he's taken all of the the uh, the archaeological evidence that Nazareth was actually inhabited in Jesus' time, and he's uh, nitpicked it. And, and tried to find ways in which it's wrong, and and you know, if, if a a particular um, figure in in one paper is mislabeled, then that means the whole paper's wrong. It's very much like the way creationists try and try and uh, nitpick at, at at science. Yeah. Um, and Randy decided that that this was that this was fine. This was great. And so Randy championed this this guy and made a little video talking about how this guy was wonderful and and uh, and debunking debunking uh, the, the work supposedly the work of, of actual archaeologists. And I wrote an article on that saying, sorry, is this the same James Randy who when it comes to anything to do with science says pay attention to the people who actually know what they're talking about. Don't listen to crackpots who have self published books uh, who have no qualifications in in the area, and who have been told by the experts that they're wrong and shown why they're wrong. Don't pay attention to those guys. This same Randy does exactly that. Why? Because it's a it's a topic that that he has an emotional investment in. He likes the idea of of, of the Bible being wrong and of Jesus not being from Nazareth. Yeah, That's fits, actually one of the, the very few, 
It fits the narrative, yeah, emotionally. Yeah? Yeah. So you get this confirmation bias. Now, Salm, not, not, you won't be surprised to hear, Salm is completely wrong. And, and the funny thing about archaeology, unlike history, where it's unlikely we're going to get another reference to the historical Jesus in a non-Christian writer, I think, you know, unless we get really lucky, we've pretty much got the evidence for Jesus that we're going to have in the source material. Yeah. Um, in archaeology, stuff comes up all the time. So since Salma's written his book, there have been about three published papers that show him that he's completely wrong and he's madly scrambling doing this rearguard action trying to defend his thesis which is really funny to watch yeah yeah i've always been i I, i'm always surprised when people kind of ascribe to uh you know a kind of minimalistic or or historical reductionism um that you know if 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 we don't know something or if we don't have evidence for something therefore it's false i mean we've just Mm. seen that that crumble so many times over and over and over again just with the turn of a shovel i mean it's it's done it's you know there's all the issues with the canaanites and and with Pilate and with you know just there's there's so many examples where you you just have you know two tons of uh of of kind of minimalistic literature going to the flames uh because of one um, shovel I'll, rather than just saying look we don't know you know there's no evidence we don't know if you're gonna if you're sorry, gonna, I'm gonna, skeptic, I'm gonna... then Tyler, I'm going to have to pick you up on pilot there, though, because I keep coming across um, coming across apologists saying using that argument, saying once upon a time there were people who said that pilot didn't exist, but then we found this inscription in Caesarea and and it proved that pilot did exist. Um, that's actually nonsense. No one has ever argued that pilot didn't exist, mainly because we've got not apart from what's in the Gospels, we've got about four references to him in Josephus. We've got an entire book about him in in Philo. Um, there was never any doubt that Pilate existed, so that I wouldn't use that one if I were you, because fair, that, that's, actually, that's actually that's actually based on on um, I won't say a lie, but uh, a misconception. Fair enough. But but your point is correct. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I'm also wondering, um, kind of kind of your thoughts, and and before before we dive into to some of the more substantive questions, um, going along with this. Um, uh, this kind of um, mythos, or well, not mythos. This this this, this habit of non-experts, um, you know, self-publishing, kind of leaving leaving their field if they have a field at all. I mean, I, I'm thinking of people like David Fitzgerald and, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and others. Yeah, yeah. Who, you know, they're not experts in anything. Um, uh, there, there's, and I tried to explain this before, and, and and it's not effective when you're when you're actually talking to the person that is that is um, ignorant or misled. Um, but but there's almost there's almost like a like a shibboleth to someone who's who's been you know you you've you've spent you you've gotten degrees, you spent your time, you've you've studied the literature, you're familiar with the scholarship, um, and so when someone comes along. Not only are their ideas wrong, but sometimes you can just tell the drop of the hat by they either don't use technical jargon that they should use, or when they use it, they use it strangely. Uh, I, I'm yeah. wondering, um, you know, if you've ever kind of noticed that flavor when you're when you're talking to or when you're writing about or engaging with some of these, and 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 um, you know how how do you how do you kind of explain that that just it's not a hunch, but it's just there's there's some there's some expertise that comes um, with with being familiar with the topic, and and so sometimes it's you know someone someone can show that they're that they're ignorant or, or they're they're not well read, not just not just in what they say. Normally, it's usually what they say, but also in just how they present it. Yeah, um, I come across that all the time. I tend to kind of ignore most of those people again because they're usually sort of a bit of a waste of time. Um, the, the people that I, I try to engage with are the ones who are at least uh, au fait enough with 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 uh, the material to to be making arguments about are bad ones. But um, but I know exactly what you mean. I, I kept coming across a guy who kept talking about um, papyriology, as in the study of papyruses. And I, I, it became clear after a while that he didn't know what that word meant. He, he'd l- obviously learned how to spell it, though, and so he kept throwing it in yeah. because it sounded very technical, but he, he clearly had absolutely no idea what it meant. Um, the same guy kept using the word eschatological and in, in, in almost random ways. And again, he, he obviously didn't know what that meant either. So he, he was someone who was who had read just enough to be able to pick up some of the technical jargon. Pericope is another one he used all the time. He, he picked up just enough of the, of the technical jar, jargon of New Testament studies 
to to think that if you just peppered his his argument with these words, they were like magical talismans, and eventually the nasty man who who was arguing with him would go away. It, it didn't work. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, th- these people never cease to amaze me that they can just sort of stumble around in a field that they actually know nothing about them and and think they can bluster their way, their way through. Maybe maybe it's because on the internet half the time you can. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Th- there's something that you know anonymity. Um, makes them brave. Yeah, um, I think I think you just mentioned David Fitzgerald, who's, who's one of the one of the people who, who presents the Jesus myth in, uh, argument you in, love, in a, in a from very. What I can tell, right? Oh, we're we're, we're great pals. Yeah. Big fan. Yeah. Um, he's not quite in that category, but but he's certainly in the category of of uh, of sort of this swaggering self assurance. Um, despite the fact he's presenting a, 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 he has no he has no qualifications in the in this on the topic, and he's presenting an argument or presenting a thesis that is rejected by pretty much everyone in the field, and I actually went and reread part of his book Nailed um, the, the other day, and I was just reading the tone of it, I was thinking, how could you be so self assured? I kind of admire him in a way. I mean, how can you have such self assurance? When you've got no background, no qualifications, and everyone who actually does thinks you're wrong, I mean, it 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 is quite astonishing. I I I'd take my hat off to him as far as self confidence is concerned. But he is a mentor. He's a, an acolyte of of uh, Dr. Richard Carrier, the uh, uh, the new atheist uh, pseudo historian extraordinaire, uh, who has raised that sort of that cocky self assurance to a. Uh, an amazing pinnacle. So he's he's probably learnt well from his from his master. Yeah, we'll we'll get to we'll get to carrier. I have. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. um, so so kind of you know I, I want to talk to you about you know two major two major topics um, because you you've you've blogged a lot about this. You have you have a, a whole blog dedicated uh, to history for atheists. Um, but then on your on your on your other blog, I'm I'm going to butcher um, how to pronounce it. Um, uh, Armirium Magnum, right? Uh, Amarium Magnum. Amarium yeah, Magnum. Means, basically, means the means the book, big book cabinet. So yeah. Um, so so I mean, you have a couple of blogs where where you've dealt with a lot of um, a lot of the issues that I'm going to ask you about. The the first one um, is really the conflict thesis or the or the war or the warfare thesis um, be, between science and and religion. Now. In in kind of in my estimation, I think Andrew Dixon White and John Draper um, have probably been two of the most negative influences um, on on the on the quote unquote skeptical on movement. If you if you kind of see just just how far and deep their their influence has been, um, could you maybe tell my audience a little bit about about these two men? Um, what what um, kind of what their project was and and their really their role in developing and what is the the conflict thesis? I know it's kind of a compound question. Sure. But. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the um, so the conflict thesis, also known as the Draper White thesis, was developed in the late in America in the late nineteenth century, and it's essentially this idea that throughout the the, the whole of, of Western history, there's been this this ongoing warfare between uh, the religious way of thinking and, and the scientific way of thinking, and religion has been constantly trying to suppress reason, science, and, and the rational analysis of the world, um, and, and trying to smother it with with faith, and, and usually using violent means of suppression. And but but reason and, and, and science has always managed to to win out in the end, and there's this this ongoing sort of struggle down through the centuries. Um, and this this idea that religion in general and Christianity in particular has always tried to sort of strangle science, and and ultimately science is kind of you know, is ultimately victorious, but we still see manifestations of this conflict today. Um, it's certainly a very popular idea, um, despite the fact that actual historians of science have rejected it for about uh, about a hundred years now. Um, it, the Draper White thesis arose in America in reaction to uh, two things. First of all, in reaction to the rise of, of uh, fundamentalist evangelical Christianity in, in uh, the 19th century in the US, um, and, and, but also in reaction to uh, the, the conflict over uh, Darwinian evolution. 
And so effectively what Draper and White did was they looked at that conflict, uh, in, particularly in, in America, which is going on to this day, over, um, over, over evolution and, and its conflict with, with fundamentalist Christianity and have projected that back on over the history of, of science and the history of, of science and religion um, back into the, the time of the ancient Greeks. Whereas more recent historians of science think that's way too simplistic and there, there have been certainly there have been instances of conflict and the the uh, the darwin um uh, thesis is it was it was one of those instances but uh, there have also been many examples of uh, religion nurturing um scientific inquiry and there have been many examples of uh, religious ideas, such as the idea of, of the universe being uh, the rational product of a rational God, and therefore the idea of the universe almost as a, as a clockwork. This, this actually gave rise to um, uh, the, the, the kind of, of thinking that, that actually led to and, and, and informed the scientific revolution in the 16th and 17th centuries, which is why we have a great many of the leading lights in that period, people like Newton, um, who were devoutly religious, and we have a, a hell of a lot of other uh, scientists who are uh, devoutly religious as well. I was talking to someone the other day about the um, about the Galileo affair, and and they were trying to ram the, that into the 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 the, uh, the the conflict thesis model, and were saying you know the church was anti-science and Galileo was was right and wonderful, and I had to point out to him that. Galileo was first championed by the Jesuits, and the Jesuits were, were definitely pretty much religious. Um, and and the, his his observations using his telescope were first confirmed by uh, Christopher Clavius, who was a who was a Jesuit scientist. In fact, if you look through your telescope at the moon and you know, have a look at some of those craters, there's about a dozen or more, a couple of dozen of them, which are named after Catholic scientists from this period because they were at the forefront. Of astronomy in this period, so the the conflict thesis is uh, is a nice, neat little fairy tale. Now, why is it so? And it's wrong, right? Oh, yeah. So why is it why is it so pervasive? Um, I think it's first of all because it, it's like a, like uh, a lot of fairy tales. It's a good, simple story. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's got villains, you know, religion, boo. It's got heroes, scientists, yay. And and the scientists are good and wise, and and the religious people are evil and oppressive, and but the scientists win in the end. So it's it's a beautiful story, and people like stories, whereas history actually isn't like that. History is incredibly messy and complicated, and and this is why when I'm talking to people who have got say a very conflict thesis view of I just mentioned the Galileo affair, um, when I try to explain to them that they're what I call the cartoon version of the Galileo story is wrong. It, it, it's much more difficult for me to tell the real story because it's huge and complicated, and there's so many variables involved, and there's so many there's so many facets to it. Whereas the the cartoon version is simple, and it's much easier for people to grasp. So I think one of the reasons why um, the conflict thesis is so is so pervasive and and therefore accepted so readily by people like like my new atheist friends is that it's actually pretty simple and easy to grasp that's number one secondly it actually it, it um, buys into a lot of prejudices um, which are fairly deep in our culture um, so it buys into a lot of emotional prejudices so if if a hell of a lot of the bad guys in the conflict thesis are for example catholics then there's actually a really strong current particularly in the anglo Sphere, so in in you know, places like America, Australia, Britain, which are pretty heavily Protestant in in its culture, even if you don't happen to be a Protestant, that that actually rings a whole lot of very very profound and deep cultural bells. So if you're talking about the Catholic Church um, uh, persecuting Galileo, immediately there's a whole lot of, of cultural resonances which are very deep in our in in Western culture, um, in in the Anglosphere. That 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 uh, it, that means that that feels right. That 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 sounds like that would be the case. Of course, the Catholic Church would be oppressive and anti-science. Where actually, yes, they were oppressive, but they thought they were being pro-science. They just happened to be, you know, they just happened to pick the wrong side. But at the time, that was the the scientific consensus of the time. So the the conflict thesis, I think, is is also pervasive because it it is emotionally satisfying because of those cultural resonances. Um, and then we get back to uh, basic ignorance of of history. Uh, it's much much easier to accept 
the the cliche version of something like to use the example again the Galileo affair than it is to go away and read the immense amount of material that you would need to get your head around in order to understand it properly. I've got a shelf full of books on Galileo. Um, I've read uh, about three quarters of them. I've got quite a few still to read, and I wouldn't even pretend to have scratched the surface of that subject. It is so difficult and so complicated. But very few of the people who are making blithe um, pronouncements on the new atheist side about Galileo have have read any of those books right. and have have even the faintest idea of what a complex topic it is. They just boil it down into pure conflict thesis, Draper White, religion bad, science good, uh, religion oppressive, science wise and wonderful. Um, a long answer, but I hope that answers your question. Yeah, and, and you know, but but re- but but Tim, really, weren't weren't all of these guys just closet atheists who were afraid of the Inquisition? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've yet to come out. I mean, I'm, uh, when you, when you keep coming across arguments like that and, and various other arguments that that uh, come come up in these discussions when I'm talking to my my dear new atheist friends. Um, I, I've, after a few years, eventually, I get I get snappy comebacks, and I've yet to get a snappy comeback that really shows how stupid that idea is. Um, the, yeah, the short answer is no, they weren't. Uh, they were like like people today. They, there was a range of, of of different levels of of piety, but on the whole, most of them were were believers of one way one way or another. Galileo, to use that example again, he was a believer. He wasn't a particularly profound believer. Uh, he was like many Italians, you know. He was, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe he had a, he had a mistress, and <laughs> he wasn't exactly what you called about. Um, but if you if you asked him, do you believe in Jesus and all that stuff, he would definitely have said yes. So no, the, the idea that they were all kind of closet atheists that, that's just I think that's just fantasy, uh, absolute fantasy. But but of course it's it's a beautiful little conspiracy theory because you can't prove that they weren't atheists because there's no you know if you point to the lack of evidence they just say that's because they were scared of the Inquisition or whatever. I mean the idea that the Inquisition was some kind of Europe-wide Gestapo that had a, a office in every town and, and that all you had to do was say the slightest thing out of line about the Catholic Church and immediately men in black robes would turn up, drag you away and torture you. Um, that's Hollywood fantasy as well. The Inquisition didn't even operate in most of Europe. Uh, most people had never seen an Inquisitor. And uh, anyone who's read medieval literature would know that the idea of, of uh, that anyone who criticised the church was dragged away is, is hilarious. I mean, read Chaucer, and you'll 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 see exactly how much fun people had getting getting stuck into the into the Catholic Church. So a lot of the lot of the the, the stuff isn't even just pseudo history; it's actually pure fantasy, and a lot of it is is based on nothing more than um, Hollywood with a you know a, a touch of the Da Vinci Code. Yeah. So you, I mean, you mentioned Hollywood. So one of one of the areas where I got um, kind of turned on to your work was um, you wrote an article on Hypatia. Um, <laughs> that that was that was I mean that was excellent because um, I, I kind of found a lot of your work after um, Neil deGrasse Tyson did his version of uh, Cosmos, uh, um, yeah. and uh, was was um, doing some work and responding to his comments about uh, Bruno. Um, yep. And uh, but then you know I, I I found your work on Hypatia. So you know I I want to ask just about some of these these common um, uh, is it fair to call them revisionist myths? For, with with no, I, I think I think I think it's better to call them you know historical fairy tales. This <laughs> is what I like to, okay. to call. Them. Yeah, so what um, are some of these bigger ones? So we have Hypatia, we have Bruno, Galileo. So what are some of the, the bigger ones? And um, you've kind of touched on Galileo um, a little bit, but maybe some yeah. of the other ones. What are, what are some of these, these the, 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 the biggies that we're going to hear about? Um, you know, the Dark yeah, Ages, well, for example. And, oh, there, there, there's that one as well. I mean, they're, they're all kind of interconnected. So, so uh, remember Richard Dawkins uh, posted, you talked about memes before. He posted a meme a few years ago that had a picture of a library and the caption was, um, uh, share, share this if you still get angry about the, the, the burning of the Great Library of Alexandria. Um, and and which, which I found deeply ironic because the picture of the library that it showed was actually Trinity College, Dublin, which is nothing like the Great Library of Alexandria. And it's a Christian institution. So right. anyway, but, um, but, but immediately all the, it got reposted and all the comments were all this stuff about yeah Christianity Christians burned down the Great Library of Alexandria Christians 
plunged us into the dark ages. And, and then usually there would be something about um, how Hypatia of Alexandria was murdered by a Christian mob and how she was like the last of the great scientist philosophers of the ancient world and that plunged us into the dark ages and so on. So again, it's, it's, a, it's a fairy tale. You know, so you got this fairy tale where once upon a time there was a magical land uh, of, called called Alexandria that had a beautiful library and was had all the the wonderful books in the world and they were on the brink of a scientific revolution but then a Christian mob came along and burned down the great library and killed the last great scientists of the ancient world and so then we had the dark ages and if it wasn't for that we'd all now be living in you know in, in space colonies on Mars. Um, now that sounds stupid, but I actually have people who argue that to me all the time um it's a fairy tale because it's got like a beginning a middle and an end and it's got a moral Uh, none of those things happen okay so first of all the great library of alexandria is 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 one of the great sort of new new atheist pseudo historical myths and in their version there was a great library it had all this stuff it got burnt down by a christian mob the end because again the history is much more complicated than that the great library was never actually burned down in any given one given act that didn't happen they're talking about the destruction of a daughter library of it called the serapeum and the serapeum probably didn't even have a library still in it when it was destroyed by a christian mob they also miss out the bit before that by the way where a pagan terrorist group um, decided to hole up in the in the Serapium and drag Christians in off the street and torture them to death, and that's why there was a Christian mob outside the Serapium in the first place. Don't know if you if you're aware of that part, but that part of the story strangely never gets told. Um, you know, so so did the did did Christians destroy the Great Library of Alexandria? No, the Great Library of Alexandria, like all the other great libraries of the ancient world, were enormous, expensive institutions that actually declined over time because that's what happens with libraries. Why people get so upset about the Great Library of Alexandria, I don't know. Not the Great Library of Pergamon or the Great Library of Celsus and Ephesus or any of these other great libraries around the ancient world. I don't know, but for some reason they get really fixated on the Great Library of Alexandria. I think it's because Carl Sagan finished his TV series back in 1980 in Cosmos with a very garbled version of the history of the Great Library. I think that's what it is. Um, But the same goes with Hypatia. She's sort of been presented for centuries as the martyr of science. There she was. She was a woman and she was a pagan and she was a scientist and she did all these wonderful things and and, but then she got one day got got torn to pieces by a, a mob of evil Christians who, who hated her because of her learning. Um, again, great story, noble hero. She was also young and beautiful and, and all of that stuff. Um, none of that actually happened. She, one, she wasn't young and beautiful, not that's important. But yes, she was assassinated in the streets of Alexandria, but there is no evidence that it had anything to do with her learning. In fact, Socrates Scholasticus, the guy who, who gave us, gives us our, our only sort of detailed account of her death, um, first of all, details how honoured she was and how revered she was for her learning by both Christians and pagans. Um, many of her, her pupils were actually Christians. Synesius, one of her pupils, became a, a bishop. Um, so why was she killed? Well, he tells us. He says, even she, despite this renown, became victim of the political jealousies of the time. And then he talks about the rivalry between the Bishop Cyril and, and the prefect of the city, Orestes, it was a political rivalry over who was who was dominant in the city. Um, Orestes killed one of Cyril's uh, followers, had him tortured to death, and so this was a tit-for-tat revenge killing. Nothing to do with her learning, nothing. Right. But try and explain, try and tell a new atheist that. Every time they mention Hypatia, it's all this stuff about how, the, how the, she was killed because she was learned. Not, I keep saying to them, show me that in the evidence. Where is that in the evidence? It, it just isn't anywhere to be found. It's a myth that they've invented. Um, the Dark Ages is another one. You know, the Christianity destroyed learning and plunged Europe into the Dark Ages. Um, again, it's a great story, you know, it, 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 and it, it, it feels about right. We know there was a period after the fall of the Roman Empire where things became barbaric, uh, where, where things fell into ruins. That's all true. Was it caused by Christianity? Um, well, actually, no. What we find if you actually start to trace what was going on in the Roman Empire as far as uh, science and, and philosophy and learning was concerned as that stuff began to decline in about the end of the second century. So it began to decline before Christianity came to, to power, so to speak, in the early 4th century, 200 years before. So what actually caused that decline in learning 
was uh, was the fact that the Roman Empire was in bloody chaos uh, for the whole of the third century. It, it was tearing itself apart, and we see this absolute precipitous drop in literacy, particularly literacy in Greek, in the western half of the Roman Empire. And since most of these works, works by people like Aristotle and Archimedes and so on, were written in Greek, not surprisingly, less people reading Greek, less copies of those works, a lot of those works got lost and got lost in what happened next, which was the complete collapse of the Western Roman Empire and centuries of barbarian invasions. So what caused the destruction of, of learning in the West? It wasn't Christianity. It began before Christianity, and it, it, uh, was actually, it actually was revived when Christianity was at its absolute height of power in the high Middle Ages. In the 12th century, that's when we start to see this ancient Greek learning and science starting to come back. So far from Christianity being the cause of its decline, its destruction, it, it, it definitely wasn't, but it was actually one of the causes of its revival. Um, and, and I could go on. Every single one of these, these you mentioned Galileo, you mentioned Giordano Bruno, um, every single one of these stories, there's the fairy tale version, and then there's reality. And unfortunately, my dear good atheist um, friends, your new atheist friends, are um, believing the fairy tale, which, as I keep saying, is richly ironic. I, I'm also curious, <clears throat> you mentioned it a little bit earlier, um, and, and this is one where I find uh, both sides typically, you know, you, you could correct me, you know, this, the, you know I, I have people like you on the show because I don't have the expertise in this area, um, and so I'd like to find people who do. Um, but, but from what I can tell, I think both sides um, kind of over overplay their hand, um, and that is on the birth of, of science itself. Um, mm. where you're going to have some Christians say, oh, well, you know, Christianity brought us science. Um, and mm. then you're going to have atheists who are going to say, well, well, no, science was, was a complete break from, from Christianity. And, and, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's been, it's been my understanding that um, Christianity was um, a, a positive influence on, on kind of what was already a, a trajectory. It was, it didn't stop it. It didn't hurt it. It didn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't the cause like, you know, science was, was hatched from Christianity, but, but there, there's a sense where you, you had, you had Christians look around, like you said, they looked around, they, they kind of saw, um, uh, the, the, what would, what would, you know, this is a little anachronistic, but what would later be, you know, the, the divine watchmaker, they, they expected regularity, they expected law because it was what they thought was designed. So they, 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 um, they, they looked for that. Um, what, yeah. what, you know, what, what do you think is, um, I mean, I mean, is that accurate and, and what would you kind of say to both sides to the side that says, well, you know, uh, science is, is ultimately a Christian thing uh, because Christians started it. Um, and then the other side where you say, well, no, I mean, science blossomed in completely in spite of Christianity. Yeah, and 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 blossom with Christianity trying to suppress it. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, I agree with you. I think I think both sides are uh, both sides are uh, the both extremes are wrong, uh, and in history that's usually the case. Um, so there are certainly people uh, who who have who have tried to argue that that uh, that science blossomed in the West in the in the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries because of Christianity, and made it a simple um, if this then that sort of equation. Uh, so there, you know, there are there are several um, uh, apologists, mainly not not actual historians, who have who have tried to to argue along those lines. I think that's way too simplistic. In fact, I think it's total nonsense. But the idea that Christianity had nothing to do with it and that, and that science arose in despite in despite Christianity's attempted oppression that's garbage as well. Um, I'm I'm inclined towards the the thesis of a guy called uh, uh, Toby Huff. Um, and and he's 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 written quite a bit on this this very question, which is why would we uh, why is it that, that Christianity arose sorry science arose in in Western Christian Europe and not in say China uh, or in in say the Islamic world? Um, so he's he's written a, a great book called The Rise of Early Modern Science, which I bought quite recently, but I read a number of years ago. Um, which asks this exactly this question because you've got the, the Islamic Golden Age, where they uh, inherited all this work from from the ancient Greeks and synthesized it and absorbed it and built on it, and were really uh, moving towards almost what you could call uh, empirical science 
and then it died, um, or it slowly sort of died out. Um, and then the Chinese also were, were, had this very rational view of the world and, and were, were very good at, at, uh, at solving problems and using reason. Um, and it was, it was built into the Confucian view of the world that, that, you, that, that there, were, there were reasons behind everything. Um, but, but again, science didn't arise there either. Why Western Europe? And I think the answer... That, that Huff comes up with and, and that is uh, and that I, I, I'm inclined to agree with is that there were it was a number of things because history is always complicated but one of those things is that there were um, there were uh, there were background reasons some of which have to do with Christianity so the idea as you say of a rational God building a rational universe um, was was so deep in uh, in in western christian western culture that that it was unquestioned um and so there was no problem actually with uh, investigating the the the, the uh, physical world using reason there's a, a guy called edward grant who wrote a great book called god and reason in, in the in the middle ages which which looks at this it looks at exactly how deep uh, reason was in in medieval thought and that therefore laid the foundations of of the uh, the scientific revolution um, but I think the other thing was that there was a number of cultural institutions some of which were Christian that were unique to Western Europe one of those is the university and now people often say to me particularly Muslim people say to me well we had universities in the Muslim world as well well kind of you had madrasas and you had certain areas you know, certain schools of, of in, in places like Baghdad and Cordoba um, that that definitely nurtured it at certain times nurtured this kind of thinking, but what was different about European universities is that they were a network, and that they had degrees which they actually adopted from medieval guilds, so trade guilds. You know, you'd be a goldsmith or a, um, a blacksmith or, or a mason. Um, they adopted that and they sort of said, okay, well we're going to have degrees. You start off, you're a bachelor, and then you move up to a master, and then you become a doctor. And which we're still used today, so that meant that if you once you got to your your, your doctorship, doctore, meaning meaning to to teach, you you were a teacher, and you could then go from let's say from uh, Bologna to Paris or to Cambridge or to Salamanca or to any other university in the whole of of medieval or early modern Europe, and say I'm a doctor from Bologna. Okay, no problem. You can go teach. And it meant that there was this sharing of knowledge across this network, and it meant that they built up this enormous amount of of uh, this corpus of accepted knowledge. Some of which was wrong, <laughs> which we know. You know, the, the Earth being the centre of the of the uh, cosmos, for example, we, we turned out that was wrong. But it all made sense, and it was all and and was also it was able to be questioned. This is the other thing about everything being based on reason. A lot of people, when they think of the Middle Ages, don't think of the Middle Ages as a period where things were questioned. Actually, everything in medieval thought had to be provable from first principles. And so you get things like Aquinas' Summa Theologica, this massive work, where he tried to prove the whole of Christian theology using logic. Didn't quite work. But the fact that he even tried is, is, is testament to what these, how these guys were thinking. So this laid this foundation of of um, reason and therefore questioning and laid this foundation of, of an institutional background. And then the other thing was that you had um, in the church, you actually had a, an institution that would employ these people. Um, now, most of the time they were, they were doing other stuff. They were doing administrative stuff. But it meant that you, you didn't need to have... Uh, uh, pe- people, people were able to sustain themselves while they were doing things like studying the nature of life. Um, someone like Copernicus wrote you know, the, an enormous thick book which revolutionized and kicked off the scientific revolution, but revolutionized our thinking while he was working as a church official. Now, that sounds trivial, but when you look at the ancient Greeks, one of the things that strikes you is how few of these rational thinkers there were. Why? Because actually it's, it's quite difficult to, you know, to spend your entire day sitting around doing nothing but questioning the universe when you, you get hungry at the end of the day. So who, who was sustaining these guys? Well, they were largely people who were sustained by rich patrons. Um, or, you had, or you had institutions like the Great Library of Alexandria, which, was, which only, was only able to, to function 
while it was being sustained by the Ptolemaic kings of Egypt. And when, when their, their dynasty collapsed, they were replaced by the, by the Roman emperors. But when the Roman emperors lost interest, the whole thing started to fall apart. So again, what you've got is, is um, a, a cultural background that sustained a class of people who, while they were you know, keeping the parish register, were also working out what made why rainbows uh, had a particular angle and what that meant about light. So this is why, these are a, a number of the reasons why that, that it happened in, within Christianity, in, in Christian Europe, but didn't happen in China and didn't happen in, in, in the world of Islam. So does that mean Christianity therefore science? No, because history doesn't work like that. So you're absolutely right that both sides are wrong when they say it was because of Christianity or it was despite Christianity. It, but the, the fact of the historical fact of the matter it is, they this this science did arise in Western Europe, and Christianity was actually intimately entwined with that. But unpicking how it's entwined is is a very complicated question because um, history. That's what history is. <laughs> because hashtag history. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, feel free to email us at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com, visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, or visit the Freed Thinker Podcast group on Facebook. Join us next time as we continue this discussion with Tim O'Neill. Good night, and God bless.